out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American alternative rock band from Los Angeles. It is going to be the three o'clock because I recently spoke to Michael Orquercio to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Casual chat in some cases. But um, yeah, so after several minutes of just getting to know each other, which gets edited out, we got down to that very, very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Michael, tell us everything. Tell us now. We're the same, we're the same age. I remember, you know, we, we were like, 10 years old, 9, 10. Yes, there you when, go. When, 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 like, when Ziggy Stardust came out, and I guess our, we heard it from our older cousins and siblings. and Yes. And then, you know, it was all over your radio in, in England. Um, here, it was just something you heard, you know, from hip relatives. Yes, <laughs> I know. Well, we had, you know, you know, in the good old, you know, UK, I mean, it was very tiny, wasn't it? We had three TV channels and one of them was, you know, um, BBC One. And we had Top of the Pops on a Thursday and then Radio One, which also had the top, um, the top 20 or top 40 on a Sunday evening at seven o'clock. So was were you from a quite a musical family? Was there a kind of a musical vibe in your household? Um, in, in my household, my parents, you know, they played records and they like, my father liked, uh, he liked classical music and that his brother was, a was, a like a big band and jazz musician. Yes. So there was, uh, there was always that, that musical background from, from my father's family. Yeah. So he understood, mm-hmm. you know, when I was, when I got into wanting to music and wanting to play it, you know, it just seemed very natural to him because it was like his brother. Nice, nice. And did you say you had older brothers and sisters, or younger brothers? I had, I, well, I had, I had older brothers, and, I had older sisters, and older cousins, and it was really the cousins that were really into the the very, you know, the very hip early seventies glam stuff. Todd Rundgren, David Bowie, you know, uh, T Rex. Um, nice. All that stuff coming out of you know all the cool stuff from here. Then of course all the stuff coming out of England you know, between 70 and 75, you know, whatever. And and so I, I heard a lot of it through them. Yes. A nice one. And um, did you ever feel, yeah. I mean, was there a point that you, because I was, you know, I'll have to be honest, I was just always into listening to music, you know, obsessively, but I never got around to sort of trying to play or, or sing or anything like that. So what, what was mm-hmm. the kind of the driving force with your kind of interest in sort of taking it to the next step? Well, it was kind of accidental. I, I was in middle school, junior high school here, about 13 years old. And I, I, I signed up for a music appreciation class, yes. which I found really boring. It was the first day, and I sat in there, and it looked so dull that I was like, oh, God, what have I done? And then all of a sudden, a, a teacher from across the hall burst into the room and said, we need more people for the school orchestra. Does anybody here want to be in the school orchestra the you know the period that the class goes at the same time as this one and i raised my hand really quick because i just want to get out of there (laughs) (laughs) so 
So, you know, he took me to the orchestra and he said, okay, you know, we have the violin and the viola. So I said, okay, he said, you should play the viola. So I started playing the viola, which is like a, a tenor violin. Yes. And then as I, I met a kid in there who was really his brother. He had an older brother who was a huge music fan and had a bunch of records. And this kid was just obsessed with T-Rex. Nice. And, and, you know, by this time they were already... You know, they, you know, the, they had already had, you know, this was in the later 70s. But uh, he got me really into them. And Mark Boland became like my idol. And so I started searching all the, you know, the, the, mostly I had to look into the cutout bins here in the States and the, and the used record stores to find all the T-Rex and the Tyrannosaurus Rex and anything that Mark Boland did. Yes. I became totally, I became totally obsessed. And it was this same friend that said, you know, you should play, you need to get a bass guitar and we should start a band. And because he played guitar too. He also played the violin in the orchestra. But so I managed to get my parents, you know, they, my dad bought me a bass guitar. And so that's kind of where it started. And then I, I just got the bug and I wanted to play. And I joined like a cover band that played a lot of the, you know, the rock hits, you know, Zeppelin and Loyster Colt and all that sort of stuff. Yes, and did you? And I, um, and so in, that, that's how I started learning my chops, playing that stuff. And yeah. at the same time, I I got really into uh, uh, this is all at about fourteen, fifteen years old. I really got into a, D, a DJ here named Rodney Bingenheimer who played all the punk stuff coming out of England on a yes. Sunday night show. And so I would get my parents to drive me up to the Whiskey a Go Go because he would he had these four o'clock in the afternoon shows on Sundays where he would be like the MC and he'd all, all these bands play. So I, I you know, I had my, my, my dad would drive me up because my dad's shop was up in that area, his business. And, uh, and I, saw, I saw a lot of like of the early LA punk bands just by going to these four o'clock in the afternoon shows. And uh, that was a pretty amazing time. Yes. And your, and your parents seemed very um, kind of, helpful and willing i mean i'm not saying mine weren't but i do remember they were the generation that if you wanted to go out at night i mean you'd never ask them to sort of come and pick you up from the pub or from a gig they would do crazy they would do crazy things i mean they would drive me i'm like i saw i went i saw so many groups you know because in la at the time as long as the venue sold french fries it was all ages <laughs> so I was able to go to places like the Whiskey A Go Go, the Starwood. I I saw so I saw the Runaways and the Dead Boys and and uh, so many of of the you know punk bands coming into town just just because I could get in and my you know my parents would they drive me they'd go have dinner or go to a movie and then at the end they picked me up. They were so indulgent in that way oh that God. I got to experience <laughs> a, a lot. Of, I got to, and then all the major concerts. We had a, a, you know, the big venue here was called the Los Angeles Forum, where all the big, you know, the big rock bands would play. Day. So my dad would just drop me off and he'd pick me up, you know. So I saw David Bowie. I saw the, I saw the Heroes Tour. Right. Blimey. I saw a lot of, I saw Queen and Thin Lizzy together at the, I saw, you know, whatever the paper said, uh, you know, there was a concert. I just told my dad, hey, I want to go. And we didn't live that far away from, from, from the big so it wasn't that hard, you know, just to kind of pick me up and yeah. drop me off. Yeah, they were really indulgent, and and I really, re I I really owe it to them. Yes, absolutely. You know, I just yeah yeah. 
because a lot of all my other friends that that was just that just did not happen you know <laughs> <laughs> well having done this show for a very long time um most people's ch- um, this is a bit of a sweeping statement, but there's been a lot of kind of like, my God, not the greatest childhood. Whereas yours were was it sounded very supportive and and very nurturing. Really, really, really nurturing, really supportful, very indulgent towards music. Uh, like I said, I just you know, it, it wasn't for them, you know. I wouldn't have experienced so many amazing things. Yes, well, my God, that was one amazing apprenticeship. And interestingly enough, a lot of the bands you've just been mentioning, um, they didn't really make it big in America. Okay, Queen eventually did, and so did David Bowie. But a lot of the other ones were very British and very much of a little scene, you know. So I was very, you know, kind of impressed how many of the glam bands you you were into at that stage. Yeah, like I said, there was this, this DJ that would play all this stuff, uh, oh, Rodney yes. Dienheimer, yes. and that's where I got, like, and, and so I went out. You could only get it in the import section, and but, you know, at the, of the different record stores, or they would they would mail order it or whatever, but I go like, that's how I got the first Damned album. Yeah. And I did didn't you... hang up on it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. No. I, that's how I got the first, the, the first Jam album. I got the first Clash album, like, almost two years before it came out in the States. They, they, they wouldn't release it for like a year and a half, but I had, the, so when they became really big, I was like, oh God, I've had that, you know, I've been into them forever, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's quite, that's quite something. Well, I, you know, I grew up in the, in a countryside in East Anglia in, in the UK. And um, to be honest, even though this was kind of happening probably a hundred miles away, in the seventies, it was still a very, very long, you know, a very long time. You know, a lot. It was a very different world. You know, things like that did not come to our area for a very long right. time. So you, you were, you, you would have had to go to London. You would have had to go to London, I would think. You yeah, know? and we were yeah. well behind the times. You know, it really is a kind of. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but at the same time, it is. You know, we are way behind the times on 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 sort of things happening in those kind of places you know and I suppose I suppose you know I've heard a lot of people from the talking about the 60s and one of the famous photographers said well you know to be honest it was a very small scene but it did you know it had a lot of media coverage obviously had a lot of great music but most of the country weren't you know swinging in six you know in the 60s they were sort of you know it was very working class you know so it's no and same thing in the in the United States I mean for most parts of the United States it was it was still the 50s, you know, the way people thought, the way, you know, you know, it was, you know, it like, the, yeah, the whole movement was very small, if you think about it, you know. Yes. And, and, uh, and did you find, I mean, because, you know, there was also other aspects, there was the sort of birth of kind of the heavy metal world of, you know, Black Sabbath, and then there was Deep Purple, and then there was the prog world, Yes, and Genesis and Barkley James Harvest. Did any of that I, mean? I saw... I saw the Ramones open for Black Sabbath on their final tour with Ozzy, Ozzy Osbourne. They played in Long Beach, which was also near where I lived, was uh, right in, kind of in the middle. It was, I was just, just south of, of L.A. and just north of, of, of places like Long Beach. and that, So I could go to all these concerts. They weren't that far. And I saw Black Sabbath with the Ramones opening, and they got booed off the stage. <laughs> Excellent. But I was there cheering, and my friends that I went with were begging me to be quiet because they didn't want to get beat up because the people sitting around me were getting angry that I was cheering for the Ramones, you know, because it was a very hostile audience. (laughs) 
That's impressive, actually. The one band that I'm sure never... I mean, huge in the UK, but I'm not sure if they ever went beyond. Well, definitely not America. Was Status Quo? That was the that was the 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 the, the go to band in in sort of a lot of the UK at that stage. You yeah, know, they but, weren't. They weren't in the seventies. They weren't that. I I had heard of them, but they weren't that big. You know, and then but in the sixties they had the big hit, Pictures of Matchstick Man, when they were still like a psychedelic pop band. Yes, this is and, true. And I, that would get played on the oldies station, and that's kind of what I knew about them. Yeah. And later on, I found out that they were this Europe sensation in Europe. Yes, absolutely. You know? I know. And, yeah. And, and the quote, and the quote fan was very committed. I mean, they would really, you, you just didn't say anything about the quote unless you wanted to be beaten up, actually. <laughs> were you, at that stage, were you, you know, you know, as one does when you're young, you know, consume as much culture as possible? Was, were films and books also part of your sort of artistic makeup at this stage? Oh, yeah. Well, just anything about music, you know, movies like uh, anything, really. Uh, there was a... There was a movie, you know, anything that would come out from England. Uh, there was a movie about uh, about the early punk scene in England that I remember seeing. And uh, uh, I was really into a band because they were my age. They were called Eater. Do you ever hear of them? Eater, yes. They were the... F- yeah, yeah. They, they were our age, but they were like an early punk band. And I was obsessed with them. <laughs> right. Well, you'll, you'll be fascinated. I did an interview with the guy uh, a couple of months ago, and... Um, you can listen to it on the podcast. It's really funny. But they're just going to be reissuing their first ever album because I think when it was recorded, and this is from memory, which is only two months ago I did this interview, but frankly I probably forgot about bits and bits of it. But it was, a ba- you know, I think the producer was really stoned and they didn't properly record it. And then decades later he's found the master tapes and they're going to reissue it very soon so i would keep your eye out on the reissue of eaters okay i will i will yeah and uh yeah yes. yeah and, you know but i love music you know in the old 60 you know the old beetle movies and just anything i could go see you know back then there wasn't even any you know vhs's yet you know you had to go to an old revival house and yeah and absolutely through, you know the old the old, the old films and did you did you get any kind of uh, music tuition? Were you, did you get any sort of help learning how to uh, become the ba- a bass player? Well, like I said, I learned it. I really learned it all playing in the orchestra because the, the instruments are very similar. From the viola, like I told you, I switched over to the big classical bass. You know, the big bass. Yes. You can play it with a bow, or you play it with your fingers, and that really, you know taught me so when i switched to electric bass it was all very familiar because uh, i had been i had been playing those classical instruments and and for a while i did have a little i would go to a little music store and a a guy would teach me some scales and things on the bass and but nothing really you know no kind of theory or anything like that you know yeah absolutely and did um i just because i realized you know because punk was you know uh, i don't know 78 Wait a minute, I must get this right. 76, 76, 77, with the golden years. And interestingly, the guy from Eater um, told me that he got really bored of punk after, (laughs) around that time. But he started to see the audience, and instead of them all being interested in an individual, all started to look like clones of Sid Vicious. And he suddenly felt, actually, I don't even want to play for these people. They're they're nothing to do with me anymore, but they've become my fans. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, here in America... 
it got by the by like 80 it got into the high schools but it got into like the the very violent hardcore like black flag you know you've heard of those groups yes you know, I know. We, called, we called it hardcore punk here it was just a lot of screaming and a lot of like it was almost like a like rugby players, you would call them, or football players, we call them here, you know, that cut their hair short and just would, you know, would bump into each other and try to beat each other up. That was the show, you know, and uh, and it got very dull to me, very, very bland, and it wasn't musical anymore. I found those early groups to be very musical. Yes. And and I and I found a lot of later stuff to be very just, aggressive just aggressive for the sake of being aggressive so it, it got very dull and what about bands like yeah. the x they they seem to be these kind of darlings of the sort no, of no i loved them i saw them a lot i saw they were from la and i saw them a lot um they were great they 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 um a lot of those types of people went to see them but they were they had songs they were very musical Yes, I, I found. Yeah, and uh, and what about the Go Go's? The power, the power pop band, the Go Go's. I saw a lot of times. Same thing. They were playing pop songs for these, you know, violent kids or whatever. But yeah, they were different. Yes, and the Go Go's were great. I loved all the power pop groups like Twenty Twenty. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They were a big LA kind of power pop. A lot of that was going on in town by like seventy nine, eighty, and. Yes. And, that, and, and for a, while, a little while, that stuff got, got, you know. I know there were bands like the Circle Jerks and people like that, wasn't there? And um, I can't remember. That, yeah, that was a real vi- the violin-y kind of stuff, you know. They yes. were actually fun. That the Circle were fun. They, I don't think they took themselves too seriously like a lot of these other... Yes. Uh, uh, ...those other types of bands did, but... Uh, I know for 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 for, for indie kids like me, it was just too much. There was too many sweaty looking men with big biceps. But however, you there you go. Exactly, you said it. You can, that that's it. Yeah. <laughs> they look, I'm not sure if they were into the music or just some sort of weird. I don't know. Like mas- I said, mas- it, was like it was a bit masochistic. Know, I mean, the, the mush pit was a masochistic thing, really, wasn't it? About being hard, I suppose, which was. A bit of a strange. Exactly. There was a lot. There was a lot. It was a football game. Yeah. It was. It yeah. was a lot of. I don't know. I look at things like that and think, God, there's a lot of uh, repressed sexual tension in there, isn't there? Really. Um, it was kind of homoerotic in a way. <laughs> Jesus, I know. I mean, you know, suddenly. I mean, who takes their shirt off, for God's sake? I mean, you know, I don't know. It's all a bit strange. I, I wouldn't just go out in public and think, oh, I must take my shirt off. I'm feeling, you know, it's like it just, does, just doesn't no, come. No, it was very, very weird when you look back at it. It was yes. very weird. Well, I don't know so, what was going on. There's so many books now <laughs> that, about that scene, and some of them have got some brilliant pictures. But looking at it from a distance, you know, it's a bit like, God, you could, you do look, feel like there's this kind of looking at sort of some species, you know, and, and the rituals that people do and the things that they did right. which obviously at the time they don't kind of analyze it but now you look back and you think oh yes young men sort of you know with these tattoos and this hair and even though they're saying they're individuals it's like hmm, interestingly everyone looks the same and then going to a gig and taking your shirt off and banging into each other and you think it does look like some sort of mating ritual really doesn't it so um yeah absolutely <laughs> the music is kind of like who cares you know as long as it's loud and it's fast and it's sort of I don't know. I suppose it keeps them out of, I don't know, harm's way. Puts them in a, a space that um, they're not going to do too much harm to an innocent bystander. 
I guess that's the one good thing about it. But look, interesting enough, punk gets really boring very quickly. Then we had post-punk period, didn't we, with the you know, bands like you know Gang of Four and Public Image Limited and Magazine. And then in the UK, right. we had dear old Margaret Thatcher. Now, the UK during the 80s, for us lefty kids who became all very whimsical, there was a lot of unemployment. So, you know, there was a lot of people who's feelings about the future were very bleak so there was a lot of kind of thatcher brought in these schemes like the job seekers allowance which you probably won't know much about but it was kind of you were on the dole but if you went on the job seekers allowance enterprise allowance scheme you could be you could still have the dole money for a year but you had to pretend (coughs) pretend to be self-employed and now during that period a lot of people thought oh what shall i put down i'll be a musician so they spent a year playing you know being in a band and and a lot of those bands actually did sort of get onto you know the john peel show and stuff like that and you know suddenly right, found right. their <clears throat> found their careers that they didn't realize they were going to have a career suddenly like oh we we we've sort of you know, there were the gatekeepers in this country. You talked about your, you know, DJ who I've come across a few times. But we had, you know, the John Peel show, which had, you know, three or four nights a week. You know, music papers like the NME, Melody Maker Sounds. And <clears throat> and every town and city in the UK would have an indie night, you know, which was probably on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. And you could see three bands for about three pounds. It was really a bargain. So there was a lot of creativity at that period. So what was that kind of period for you, that kind of late 70s and early 80s? Because this is a period when you're, you're hitting 16, 17, aren't you? Right, right, exactly. And uh, like you said, very, very uh, inventive and um, and just, it just seemed like you could do anything, you know. And that's when I discovered a lot of the, the, the 60s stuff, you know. That yes. I really got into as well, and and uh, it just seemed like you could do, you know, that, that it was just a great, really great period. Everything seemed, um, you know, accessible. You, you you could do any kind of music, you know, other than you know the heavy rock, whatever, which was very cliche and boring by then. But, yes. Uh, well, we yeah, had, you know, uh, I suppose what we had, though that that kind of there was that period where there was like, you know, early U two, Simple Minds, Julian Cope, um, and then eighty three was a massive year because that's the year of the Smiths, who which I think were just amazing during the eighties. But you, your first band were called Sal- the Salvation Army, which you know, obviously, you yeah, drink. yeah, it started out as as a very kind of uh, more punk thing, but it evolved into a, a more pop even more poppier thing yes and mm-hmm. uh and uh but you changed your name didn't you you had to change the and name. then we had to because of because the sal sally army got you know on our on our back <laughs> so <laughs> that's when it was it became the three o'clock yes and uh mm. and uh and then that's when I, we really went kind of full board to be just kind of like a like a you know psychedelic tinged pop group yeah, and it you moved know, and it yeah. moved very quickly. But there was a very intense period. Did you did everything line up very quickly for the band? You know, it did. It did. You know, we um, put out the EP Baroque Down uh, first, and then uh, and then that just I without really thinking, I on my part, not really knowing where it would go, and then it just kind of took off. Like it really got it caught the ear. 
And yes. then that's when things started happening and we started meeting all the other, these other bands in town that were kind of like-minded, you know, then when you get the whole Paisley underground thing and that's kind of where that came from. There were just these like-minded groups at the time, all yes. kind of into the same thing. And, and, and we became friendly and played shows together and, and that's where that all kind of came about. And what was it like um, the first time in the studio recording? Because you you did a few EPs, singles, but the album, the Salvation Army album, which has a fantastic cover, <laughs> which is a real throwback. That to... was a, that was me because that was a, that was my first time in a really big. We had done a single originally, uh, with, uh, and that was in like a little eight track studio near where I lived. And, uh, and that was neat cause I'd never been in a studio before. And, uh, and then by the time we did the Salvation Army album, that was in like a real big 24 track kind of thing. And that was like, uh, wow. You know, it was all, you know, and I was still 19 years old. So it was all pretty, pretty wow for me. you know, well, absolutely. And did you find your, your sort of, yeah, I mean, you have to stand up, you know, step up to the mark quite quickly at this stage and sort of, you know, writing and recording songs. Did that start to sort of come together surprisingly quickly? Yes, you know, it did. It I, it did just uh, just because, uh, you know, it had to, you know, I just got it got into that. And and I just it was like, you know, OK, let's do this. Let's write, write some more songs, it, you know, so just kind of like a. Uh, just needed more songs, so I just kept doing it, you know, just kept yes. collaborating and writing stuff and, and and getting it, you know. Put down in, in, a, in a very easy and, and sort of smooth way. I guess it's the, the joy of youth, really, <clears throat> and uh, excitement with a, with a coupled with naivety. Because initially you were on Frontier Records, weren't you? Um, yes, initially it was Frontier Records. And that's where those early records were, most of them were from. Uh, the first little single was a little label called New Alliance, a group called the Minutemen owned. Right. They were a local band. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, that was what a first 45, but then the stuff after was on Frontier. Yes. And, uh, and that was a very nurturing. And she let us dig, the woman that owned the label let us do exactly what we wanted. There was no, you know, it was very it was very creative because there was nobody looking you, we could just do whatever we, we wanted there was no nobody looking over your shoulder like on a major label you know no so i did an interview with miles copeland recently mr irs and also he was the manager of uh, the police and then various other bands as well what was um right yes was that a kind of an exciting Period, because obviously there's also to, yeah, to go on to go on with them. You know, it was a lot different because we had to kind of present the music that we wanted to record and get it get it okayed. You know, mm. which you is... know, which which had never happened before. Before it was just okay. These are the songs we're going to do, and we're going to do them. And by the time we got on Miles Copeland's label, it was kind of like, okay, tell us what you want to do, and we'll tell you. You know, we're going to let you, <laughs> but. uh <laughs> But uh, it wasn't that. But it was really wasn't that controlling. It, it all we all were kind of like minded. They let it pretty much do what we wanted. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and uh, yeah, I, we were there for you know. 
quite a few years because I, I I also bizarrely did an interview with a guy who was in Doctor and the Medics and they um yeah. they had a bit of a hit, one hit wonder it was a cover but he, he I saw I saw them when they played LA did they but he I he saw told them where they they had the, the they did the cover of a Spirit in the Sky they did Norman yeah <laughs> the Norman Green something yeah. song but he Green Bomb yeah yeah because yeah. he told me a funny story which was like when he because they they used to play at a club called Alice in Wonderland and they were just kind of having a bit of a laugh and it was a kind of a bit of a psychedelic kind of scene and right and right. and and that was kind of quite yeah there was a lot of kind of uh, I don't know those, those kind of a lot of what I found because I've done quite a few interviews with them those bands did really get out of London they they sort of played to lots of enthusiastic members of the audience and you know they 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 had a great following but they didn't really translate to album sales or singles and they didn't really come out of London particularly but Doctor and the Medics kind of had this kind of I think gig or they signed with IRS and Miles and uh and yeah, the guy who told me, you know, the lead singer, a funny story, which was where they played, you know, Miles, the album and, and Miles at that point in his kind of career kind of started shouting, you know, I can't hear any hits. You know, you've got to go and get a hit. And then that's when they went away and had to record something. They did Spirit in the Sky and it was like, oh, blimey, we've got a hit. But, you know, so there was a, there was a little bit more kind of pressure, he said. I mean, they, you know, I don't think he was particularly taking music that seriously in, in, in that way. So um, it was a bit of a, he had to shift gear quite quickly. And also when you were doing yes, your, right. you, you were doing your sort of that album Arrive Without Traveling, you recorded this in Germany, which seemed quite, um, I'd say almost yeah, exotic. Apparently they got such a deal that it was, you know, that it was actually cheaper to do it, to fly us out there. Put us up because the studio had its own like apartments in it and its own you know everything and and they were just at open and they were just trying to get so they gave this incredible deal to irs so it just turned out to to uh actually you know actually be a, a cheaper deal for them yes and had you, you done know, any got, touring had you had done any touring before then in europe and in the uk no, that was my that was my first time in 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 Europe. You know, we lived a month a month in Germany. Later, and then later on, about a year later, we played a a week in London. That was the only time I had ever gone to London. We played a week there. Right, fantastic. And Mike, um, yes, Mike Hedges was the producer for this, and who's gone on to work with lots of other people, but he'd worked with Bauhaus and Susan the Banshees and The Cure. How did you all run? Yeah. What was that? He was a great guy. We, we, he was a great guy. He was pretty, just kind of recorded us as we were. I remember him, you know, he was an engineer and producer. And I don't remember that much. He was just kind of like, you know, this is what we want to do. And he was like, cool, you know. And and uh, he was a really nice guy, real funny guy. And it was, it was a good time with him. Yes, it was a, he was a, he was a very very nice guy. Because you because you coined the term, didn't you, the Paisley Underground? Yes, yes, that was just in a in an interview <laughs> when someone just asked me, "What do you call what do you call all these groups? You know, the, all these you know the Dream Syndicate, the Bangs, and all that. You know, what do you do? You have a name for you, for all this little group of friends?" Yes, and I thought it was a kind of an odd question, and I went, "It's uh, well, uh, it's the Paisley <laughs> Underground." And uh, and then that it's funny because maybe about a month later, the name started appearing. Originally, it was just in an L.A. paper, but that little phrase started appearing at things like the NME. 
<laughs> and and it was just kind of like when they told me I was I had forgotten I had said it. It was like, what, what? Oh, you know, you said it to that guy, and now it's caught on. You know, it's funny how those things work. Yes, it must be strange because forty years later, people like me go, "Oh, yes." You probably go, "Oh God, he's going to ask me that question." Everyone asks me, but yes, there you go. I thought I'd get out of the way. <laughs> Did you, you know, at that time? Because, because I suppose, okay, you, you call the the page underground, but then there was I put, you know, indie pop, the the classic indie pop years between eighty three to eighty seven, which is the years of the Smiths, and that's when all those kind of jingly jangly bands really sort of came up in the UK. Like, right, obviously there had been Orange Juice before, but then we had, you know, the June Brides and the Wolf Hands and Yeah Yeah No, obviously the Hail Smiths, Fountains and Yeah Yeah, yeah. So there was a real scene and a real vibe. And then in eighty seven, uh-huh. the, the Smiths break up, which obviously is a devastating moment, and then. Ecstasy appears on the scene, and the next wave of sixteen to eighteen-year-olds kind of want their, um, they want their kind of band and their soundtrack, and they want to discover the new, the new sort of band that they can feel very excited by, as you do when you're sixteen and eighteen, in that ballpark, right. kind of way. And then a lot of the, you know, then there was the dance world of, you know, the Soup Dragons and Primal Scream and the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses. Did you get quite influenced at all with what was going on in that? England, you know, I, the, the British. I remember, I remember the, you know, you know, the Stone Roses, they're, they used to send me the, their rehearsal tapes. Right. They were big fans and they would say, I wish I, I don't know what I did with them. I think I saved them. I would get these tapes of, 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 of them just, you know, they had just gotten together and, um, and, uh, and it wasn't a couple of years later that they were getting big. And I was like, wait a minute, I know that name. That's that group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, they were very, they really liked the Salvation Army and all that stuff. They were, they were very into that. Yeah. I was, you know, so. You just thought, who are these kids from Manchester? I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, it, it was, it was, it was nice. They were, you know, I, would, I liked them. It was, uh, um, it's funny. And, you know, they got, they just took off, so. Absolutely, it's amazing. And then there was this kind of Liverpool connection because obviously, in the in Liverpool there was a club called Eric's, and it was like only lasted about two years. But there was all the people from Frankie Goes to Hollywood and uh, Death School, and then Bill Drummond who went on to the KLF, and also Ian Brody from the Light, who went on to form the Lightness Seeds, and he produced your yes, yes. your third and then he album, the, the, the final, the third, yeah, the Ever After record, yes, uh, and. Uh, and it, when it came, it got more keyboardy kind of than the than the jangly thing. I don't, uh, but uh, yeah, he was a great guy too. And, yes, uh, yeah, very very into that same kind of thing, and uh, and we really liked his group. Um, so that all worked, you know, just kind of just meeting all these great people. Yes, this is a whole like you said that whole thing was it was going on in both places. Absolutely, absolutely, and you, you did work with some amazingly talented people. There's, there was Jason Faulkner for a while, wasn't there? Yes, yeah, he was the final, final guitar player. Uh, just you know, he answered an ad, and he was you know just a couple, of, uh, maybe three or four years younger than me, and uh, and uh, he just kind of showed up and joined up. You know, he was just starting out, and, uh, and that well, was the final version, the final version of the group, and then. And then he went on to do his own thing after we broke up. And yes, well, I think it was at Jellyfish. I did a, 
I think he's kind of in a, in LA. And one of yeah, the for a while, yeah. And then there was also obviously in the eighties there were some major players, including dear old Prince. So there was did that feel quite amazing that you got to do Paisley Park the Paisley Park years? Yeah, that was pretty that was the final thing. Yeah, that was great. He was really into the band. He he liked the Arrival Without Traveling album, so he got into us and and he was into the Paisley Underground thing, you know. And then, so he took it and kind of did Paisley Park, and I mean, I think I, you know, I, that's where all that came from. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> but, you know, he was a very nice guy, and 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 uh, I met him, and you know, he gave us a, a tune, and and uh, I think he had a lot going on at that time. Well, so, at that uh, at that period in Prince's life, I mean, he done there was. A, Sign of the Times was coming out in '87, wasn't it? Which was the kind of classic right, album. Right, right. And he you, loved sexy and and that, right? And then and before then, you had those other ones. And oh God, I can't remember now. Actually, there were so many, wasn't there? The eighty in, in the right. '80s, he really he really did sort of make so many classics. And and during that period, I sort of I've become quite slightly obsessed with him in a slightly you know I didn't overdo it, but he'd done Purple Rain. And then around the world in a day, which had some classic songs, parade. But it was kind right. of sign of the times was the album that absolutely changed everything. So that must have been quite something. Was that intimidating? You know, having to go from IRS to Paisley Park. Well, the sad thing about it is that that he at the time he wasn't Paisley Park. You know, it was mostly just we were just kind of given to the Warner Brothers subsidiary. That that distributed it. Yes. You know, and and he and he wasn't as hands on as I was hoping he'd be. It was really just these kind of people from the Warner Brothers that kind of uh, oversaw everything. Yes. With 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 his label, you know, and uh, and uh, so when... you know, it wasn't too long after that that he like got in that fight, and you know, and. Uh, yeah, all that trouble was just beginning with them. So it was a weird time that he wasn't really, you know, able to really concentrate on on that label like I think maybe he should have. I know. It's such a shame. You're, um, it's a little bit crackly. Are you in a sort of a windy environment here? It sounds like the wind. Yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and I think my battery's going too. So. Oh, my God. Don't say that. That's drastic. What was yeah. it like yeah. with... with um, recording his song Neon Telephone. Were you kind of happy to do that? Yeah, well, he gave us just a few things to choose from, and it really seemed like the only thing that was that was really um, something that we could do. You know, the the other stuff I just didn't feel was really something. And uh, so, but really, with the you know, I would wish we had gotten a different producer in that it just it was almost it was too much control by those warner brothers people right you know as as to what you know what you can do and what you should sound like and and uh like i said i wish that he had had more input i well, think it would have turned out differently yes did you at that stage feel that was that was kind of enough for the band and, and yourself. Yeah, that was that was kind of that when we called it quits. You went. That's it. After and right was it? And was it something right. that everybody kind of was aware that it was coming to an end? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We did one little tour that just went really badly. You know, just kind of it just you know you know something's over and 
And so we, you know, when that was over, I just kind of said, you know, it's got to move on. It just, it wasn't fun anymore, you know. And uh, it's mm. funny because one of the songs from that Prince album uh, became, uh, we didn't know it until years later, but it was like a big hit in the Philippines. But we had no idea. And even Warner Brothers put it out as a single. And we had no idea until, you know, 20 years later. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a few people there's the wild swans and a few other british bands who are huge in the philippines which they they kind of find is funny well they don't really because they said the problem is they have such counterfeiting they don't really sell any you know legal records but they're very big in the they have a lot of people come to the the uh right the gigs but they don't really make anything on all the album sales because it's it's not completely legit. Like we started seeing like these these videos and things on on the YouTube on YouTube or the uh, you know these cabaret these, these cover cabaret groups out in the Philippines were covering this song, and we we're kind of like, why are they doing it? And later we found out, oh, this was a this was a hit there, you know. It's mm. very funny. And then finally, someone came around to finding the actual Warner Brothers forty five that they had put out. But like, if that was the kind of the music scene, then you could all this stuff could be happening, and you could have no idea that it ever happened. <laughs> very, everything, everything with Prince and, and 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 his, what was going on was just very, you know, it was very confusing at the time. So yeah. I think it was all the right things to do, but I was maybe just the wrong time to do it. So. Absolutely. And then you know, from there, you went into game theory, didn't you? The next, the next band. For a couple of yeah, a little bit. I did. I, did, I just joined. That was already a band going on, and I was good friends with Scott, uh, who is the you know the leader, Scott Miller, and. And so uh, I joined up with them for a little bit. We did a tour and recorded some stuff. Yes. But then we they were in San Francisco. I was in L.A. and it was just too much of a distance. Yeah. And then you thought that's... And then that's when I just uh, start just live, you know, stay down in L.A. and, and, and start the group Permanent Green Light that I did. And... Yes. Did you, and um, I mean that that sort of filled the nineties. When you were watching, you know, like a lot of those bands that came out in the nineties, especially the Britpop stuff, did you feel that um, right. this was kind of your one of a scene that you should have been sort of capitalising on? I thought so. I thought so, but it just never seemed to, you know, we just kind of got passed over. Kind of just, uh, I think, uh, I don't know. Had we had gone to England, maybe. You know, I just don't, I don't, I think it didn't, just didn't seem like they wanted American groups doing that. You had to be, you know, Brit, for Britpop, you had to be Britpop. Yes, so. I, <laughs> I guess this is, this is true. You, you know, so, so from that, you also a member of Jupiter Effect as well. Yeah, yeah, went on did that and, uh. And was it the case, then, did did you have to sort of just get another career or another gig after that period? Yeah, yeah, just kind of go on. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it all just kind of just, you know, kind of fizzled out. Yes. Was that difficult to leave the kind of the music world it was strange because I had been doing it since, you know, I was a teenager, really. So it was strange all of a sudden just to not be in it, you know. Yes, absolutely. But, uh, but then, 2013, Miracle Monks, Miracles, you get, you you know, there's the revival, the Three O'Clocks. Yeah, that was great. That was great. We did a uh, 
bunch of shows, and it was a lot of fun. I know. Dear old and, Coachella. Uh, it's got to be done, hasn't it? Yeah, we did the Coachella Festival, and that was, you know, it's one of the biggest things in the U.S., you know, so that was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. and did you it, never know. And was it quite we went, straightforward we to, getting the band back together? When uh, that was offered, it was pretty easy. Only the Mike, the keyboard player, kind of didn't want to do it, so we got a a friend named Adam Marin that that sat in on the keyboards right. for us. I became like the fourth guy. Yeah. But uh, no, pretty much it was pretty. Uh, everybody wanted to do it. You know, it was a great opportunity, and it was a lot of fun. I could imagine. And did it? Was it the case then? Because I've noticed doing this show for quite a few years is that there's a kind of passing of time of about 25, 30 years where, you know, things happen, you know, we just take it for granted and then you get on with the rest of your life. Then have a bit of a reflection and think, actually, that was quite brilliant. Did did that feel a little bit like what you did back in the 80s was possibly better than you imagined or could, you know, realise at the time? You know, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, you know, because you're able to see it through, you know, clearer eye. You know, it's almost you're so removed from it. You're able to really hear it with different ears. You know. Yes, and 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 it's kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, and, and I, well, I was going to say you you know there were the bands like the Bangles and Dream Syndicate and the Rain Parade. who all started you know getting back for sort of the odd odd reunion, weren't they? You're right, exactly. Yeah, and we, we all played together uh, a couple shows, one in San Francisco, one in L.A., and that was a lot of fun. We all, that, was a, that was a really great thing to do, and we got, you know, I think, we, you know, we packed the Fillmore, sold out the two places over, you know, about, you know, 1,500 people, and it was, it was, so it was, it was great. It was just a real successful thing. Yeah, thanks. Like, you know, it would be fun to do it again. It was fun. Yeah, and what was it like... For you, because I mean, you you know, the last time I think the band reformed was, you know, like 2018. So then, you know, obviously last year was this kind of weird period. Have you kept kind of creating and sort of writing material? Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, with the group Permanent Green Light, we just released a single that came out a, a couple months ago of new material. Uh, and... Uh, um, I'll get you a copy of that. Okay. You can this hear is, that for yourself. Yeah, just, well, you'll, you'll text me your address and I'll, I'll, I'll send you out a I'd copy love, of that. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, did yeah. you, because I spoke to a few people who, some musicians had just done their kind of year of, you know, releasing an album, doing a tour, and were planning to have 2020 to recover. So it worked quite well. And other people were, were sort of thinking, God, we just got the album, we're doing the tour, and now it's all been pulled and that was kind of devastating and then a lot of people also said they didn't really feel very inspired as the lockdown you know went on how did you navigate that period um kind of both ways you know it it, it seemed like an opportunity but it just there was so much it was so depressing you know it was hard to feel motivated you know because you know you everybody you know you're gonna you know with you know Death was looming for everyone, for whatever. <laughs> you know, it was a horrible times. That's kind of hard to. It's funny, you know. <laughs> kind of hard to. But uh, I'm hoping things. You know, things are opening up again. And, 
Is it the case then yeah. with, with last year and then to quote Joni Mitchell, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. And a lot of people suddenly think, my God, I've been a bit sort of, I'm not sure if I want to talk, I'm not sure I want to do this. And then suddenly the pandemic happens and you haven't got a choice and everything gets closed down. Do you feel that there's going to be a bit of excitement and stroke desperation of people wanting to, you know, either reform or form a new band or record new material? I th- I think so, but I think we'll have to see. I think there, yeah, I think there might be. I think a lot of you know, there's just a lot of people want to go see things again, and, and I think it might be. Maybe people won't be so jaded now. No, we'll all be relieved. Yeah, and maybe, yeah, yeah, and so maybe it will open up a lot of reuniting and things. We'll have to see. Yeah, have you but got? That, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to run because my. My battery's about to die here. Oh, my God. This is terrible. Look, yeah. is it possible? Just one last question then, because I, sure. I have yeah, to always good. ask this. I mean, if you could have said something to your 18, 16, 18-year-old self, you know, some bit of wisdom and, and advice or, or just say, you know, even if you, it was to say, actually, it's all being good. I, is there kind of a couple of, you know, things that you would have just kind of whispered in their ear? I would just say don't, don't doubt yourself. Don't. Uh, be more confident in what you're doing. Don't listen to other people. Yes. As much as be be more confident in yourself, which is hard to say to somebody at that age, you know. Because, you're <laughs> <laughs> but that's well, what I would say. That's what I would say. Was it the case then that you've, were, you know, in that kind of slightly introspective, shy person? Was, was that? I will. Yeah. I, I I'd, I'd like to say maybe not be so much that way. Yeah, I was, I was. This is it's easy to do. But look, this has been fantastic. I'm glad that my timekeeping was a little bit overexcitable, but we got there in the end, so that's all very good. But thank you ever so much for your time. And uh, and that was me in conversation with Michael Quercio from the Three O'clock and also various other projects as well. Um, Yes, what can I say? Amazing. Just amazing. So um, if you want to find out any more information, I think if you probably Google 3 o'clock Michael Quercio, there is information out there as well. So um, do check it out. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.